0: Thursday and welcome to the latest edition of Bold Leaders in Learning. It's hard to believe this is actually our 30th show. Kind of tells you how long we've been in this pandemic because I kicked this off as a result of all the free time I had on my hands from not flying around on airplanes. So I'm delighted to have this 30th episode be with John Kroger who has worn many hats uh, as an attorney general, a college president, uh, most recently as the Chief Learning Officer of the Navy, and now in a brand new role as Vice President at the Aspen Institute. We're going to be talking about higher ed today, but I can't help but you know start us off with a little bit of John's background uh, recently with the Navy. But John, uh, tell folks a little bit more about your background. Obviously, I've highlighted some of the pieces, and then just tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the Aspen Institute. And from there, we'll we'll dive into some conversation. Thanks for being with us.
1: That sounds great. Uh, Thank you for having me. So I have split my career between public service and higher education. On the public service uh, side of my career um, started early. I enlisted in the Marine Corps when I was 17. And that orientation toward serving our country is sort of carried over into a lot of my work. I was a federal prosecutor, prosecutor of the mafia in New York and uh, attorney general of my state most recently, uh, Chief Learning Officer of the Navy and Marine Corps. I've also spent a lot of time in higher education. I originally was a law professor. I'm a lawyer by, by trade and um, served as president of Reed College. And these two streams of my work have come together, uh, both in my time uh, in the Pentagon, but also in my work at the Aspen Institute. Um, I am running a program uh, called uh, uh, the Rodell Program. It brings together elected leaders from both parties from all over the country and puts them through a very intensive two-year seminar program that's really designed to do two things. One is to to build their understanding of and deep commitment to America's democratic tradition. And second, to build a lot of ethical self-reflection. You know, as someone who was an elected official, you're kind of going 24-7 on your job and you very rarely get a chance to step back and reflect about the broader purposes that should motivate your work. And the Rodell program has been very successful at creating this, this large cohort of leaders, everything from uh, uh, senators and governors to Kamala Harris, who's running for vice president, um, have gone through the seminar. And uh, we're talking right now about expanding the program to include federal judges and leaders in the national security world. So it's uh, it's work that brings together my my interest in education, my interest in public service, and my commitment to ethics.
0: Well, it's certainly uh, an incredible career and a fascinating career. And and thank you uh, for for both your public service uh, generally and your service to higher ed. I think you know one of the things you just mentioned. I, I wanted to pause on is this notion of leaders, you know, taking a moment to step back and reflect. I mean, obviously that's part of the the formal kind of role you're building as part of the, the Aspen Institute work, but. I think it's a helpful for, reminder for all of us these days, right? A lot of leaders are, you know, hurling towards burnout. They've been dealing with crisis after crisis, uh, and, you know, taking time to kind of reflect, taking time to unplug. That's not easy for people to do just a, you know, small word of encouragement as you're uh, talking about that, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, start with your, your most recent role. I started following you because of all the posts you were doing in your role as chief learning officer at the Navy. And, uh, Obviously, thanks to an introduction from one of our uh, friends, Larry Mineta, who I know is on the on the on the uh, stream today. But, um, you know, you were you were really pushing a lot of innovative thinking about how learning should take place in the Navy. Maybe just tell us a little bit about that, because I think there's a lot of relevance to where we're going to kind of evolve on our conversation about higher ed. So tell us a little bit more about what you were what you were doing there, what you accomplished, what's underway as a result of your tenure.
1: Sure. It was a um a pretty surprise gig for me. I was teaching at Harvard and I was asked to come in and be the first chief learning officer of the Navy and Marine Corps to ever had. And the position was created after a remarkable self-study that um, both of the services did. And the conclusion was that in the 21st century, America's primary differentiator between itself and, and various international competitors is potentially an intellectual advantage. Um, you know, if you're thinking particularly about China, it's a near peer in terms of its technological capabilities, in terms of its economic strength. And so, how does a country like ours differentiate itself in the national security sphere? And the idea was through the power of ideas. Um, and that transcends, uh, you know, uh, uh, any particular role. Um, the entire service needed to be upgraded intellectually. And so, I was brought in to devise a brand new learning strategy for the Navy and Marine Corps. I think the, the piece that's probably most profound and of long-term importance is the creation of, of a brand new Naval Community College. So this is a, a dedicated um, learning institution for the enlisted force in the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. And the, the basic uh, idea here is that in the 21st century um, IT, is going to be king networks are going to matter a whole lot um the the ability of our uh our forces to deploy all these unmanned systems drones both on the water undersea in the air are all a function of our of our it capability and so how could we create an institution that would get our enlisted force um, a whole different set of tools um, to get them ready for this new world and um, the community college uh, was, the, was the answer. Um, it's going to be up and running in this, this coming year um, with its first cohort of students. And it represents a pretty new change, a pretty significant change for the armed forces. Um, the providers are not going to be uh, military technical schools, but um, providers in the higher education community. Um, you know, when I looked at the skills we needed, um, they were ones that were already being provided by world class institutions. Um, that already offer degree programs and certificates in the areas we needed. So it's gonna be a 100% online institution um, working where about 95% of the content will be provided by current higher education providers.
0: Yeah, you know, it sounds like what you were trying to solve for in the Navy is akin to what most major employers around the world are trying to solve for, right? There's this massive digital transformation that's been going on for a while pandemic has, you know, forced an acceleration of that in many ways. Um, and I just think, you know, it's a, I mean, it's, it's innovative from a number of perspectives, but, you know, one of those is just curating partners that were already providing this stuff. I mean, instead of, you know, reinventing the wheel, it was, uh, I think, a thoughtful, you know, kind of model of, of utilizing what was already there and doing it in a way that's very unique to the needs of, uh, you know, the enlisted force in the Navy. So, you know, as you think about um, you know that example, what's happening with you know learning across corporate America, what's happening in higher ed now? Obviously, we could spend a lot of time talking about the pandemic, and I know that's relevant to to our conversation. But you know, many of these uh, transitions, I'll call it, that we're going through now in the middle of the pandemic are things that were already underway pre-pandemic, right? Um, maybe you know moving faster, or the pressure is greater now, but you know, take me to uh, take me to where higher ed is now. Right. Um, a lot of financial strain as a result of this. There were financial headwinds in front of higher ed again before the pandemic. Um, maybe just tell me a little about your thoughts. You know, as a former college president, uh, how do you how do universities, you know, dig themselves out of uh, precarious financial situations? Like it, it's, it's pretty serious in a lot of places. What would be some of your guiding uh, you know, wisdom around that?
1: Sure. I would say for for traditional higher education institutions, I think there's a a, a short term and a midterm game. Um, the short term one, and I, I think most places are are doing this with some seriousness. Uh, you're going to need to cut costs as as radically as you can over the next 18 months. There's just there's just no way around that, and it's painful given the the large percentage of higher ed costs that are labor costs. But there's no way around that. Um, one has to find more efficient delivery models right now. Um, I think the, the second thing is for those institutions that have endowments, they need to be having serious conversations with uh, their boards about, about endowment draws. Um, I've seen some that seem very rational to me, uh, understanding that um, a higher draw for the next two or three years is, is, is essential if you wanna maintain your market position. I've also seen some that seem to me irresponsible, uh, that seem to be way too large um, and damaging the long-term viability of the institution. So I think you know, the president's having a very sophisticated conversation with their boards about endowment management right now is, is critical. For me, the big midterm challenge that I see people failing to do is to focus more clearly on their value proposition. Uh, You know, I I think um, most institutions are worried about their budgets. And yes, short term, that's appropriate. But long term, the real crisis is, is, are you offering something that is unique? And offering something that is not just unique, but valued by enough people to sustain your institution? And rather than immediately defaulting to a conversation about how you can develop different revenue streams or different business models, I really would encourage leaders to go back and and talk in very concrete terms about where the value of your institution lies. Um, It was very interesting. When I got to Reed College, um, an amazing institution with a lot of strengths, but total lack of clarity about what the value proposition of the school was. And that then led to an incoherent communication strategy and very poor admission numbers. And we actually doubled the number of applicants in five years just by being more clear about what the value of the school was and communicating that more forcefully. Um, In that case, I think we had a good value proposition. We just need to clarify it. In a lot of institutions, I don't think they have a viable long-term value proposition. And those are the institutions that need to go into some soul searching about changing their, their, their fundamental mission or merging.
0: Yeah. I mean, mission pivots or wholesale changes in mission are going to have to be part of the equation. Right. And, you know, you, so, so, you know, to, to a couple of these points that you've raised um, you know, it's not just about rushing to say, Hey, how can I diversify revenue? What are the things I need to go after? Like that, that value clarification is critical. I was on a session earlier today about higher ed marketing and branding and, and, the points were brought up that a lot of hired institutions, you know, do not have a unique differentiated brand. You know, they they use a lot of the same language. You know, you say, hey, what's the difference? You know, if I blind, you know, taste tested the marketing messages of five universities, right, there's a lot of similarities there. There's a few that stand out, right? And those are the ones that have been relatively uh, successful. So I I like how you started with, you know, the values clarification. I'm not sure people are starting there as like making sure they've got that pinned down what do you say then to an institution that's been, you know, very, I'll call it, you know, uh, very focused on one type of student, right? The traditional college age kid who wants to be in a residence hall and have that, you know, you know, you know, that's a, that's a narrow view of what higher ed is. You know, when, when you and I were talking just before we came on the show, you know, you were saying, Hey, you know, I get this question all the time from people, what's the purpose of higher ed. And your answer was, there's many purposes, Is this about an individual institution thinking about new purposes that it has? Uh, Or do you think it's gonna be more of that clarification of a core value proposition, stay down one focus pathway, or do they need to expand who they're serving and how they're thinking about serving?
1: I think it is very much context specific. I think it depends on the institution. I would say we're learning two things, I think from the COVID-19 experience. One is, Traditional higher ed in residence on a college campus has immense value. And I think people um, as they experience mass online education really for the first time are seeing the value of the traditional approach. So I don't think that's going to go away. Um, And I think institutions that are focused on that and, and are capable of offering a really transformative development experience for students are going to do fine. Um, But I would say that's one pretty small segment of the total market. Um, I think we have a lot of adults who are going to need to to change skills and upgrade their skills, and we're going to have a lot of corporations who are doing just what I was doing in the Navy, looking at their workforce, determining that they have needs, and trying to find educational providers that can help their workforce fill that gap. And... To be totally honest, as, as, as those last two segments move mostly online, it's not clear to me we need 4,000 online educational providers in the United States. I think there's going to be a massive market shakeout. So I think people need to be clear. Um, I, I do think that the cat is sort of out of the bag and won't go back in terms of online education. Now that every major university has an online program, they're never going to abandon that. And so the competitive field there is really going to be determined by brand. And a lot of institutions don't have a strong national brand in order to be able to drive students to their programs. So I think looking at the market as highly differentiated and trying to find a market niche where you have value proposition and really focusing on that niche is the right way to go for most uh, institutions, aside from, you know, the though perhaps 100 institutions in the country that truly do have national brands.
0: Right. Yeah. And as you think about, uh, you know, let's push out into the future a little bit, um, because I know you've had a lot of thoughts about, you know, how learning might be curated for, you know, let's just say all of us. Right. In some form where, you know, the constant need for, you know, staying fresh, relevant, keeping up with very fast moving digital technologies and, you know, data analytics. I mean, these are things that, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago, no one was talking about data science, you know, the last three years, data scientists are the most in demand roles in the United States, right. In terms of hiring. So obviously things are moving at a fast pace, but tell me a little bit about your vision around this, uh, you know, L- the, 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 the LMS of the future is, is uh, where I'll start, but you describe it better for me here.
1: Sure. Well, I think most people are getting familiar with learning management systems as as services offered by particular corporations to help identify talent within their corporation and um, to upgrade the skills of their workforce. Um, I really think what we're going to see in the future are ubiquitous learning management systems that have the kind of scope and reach and buy-in that large social media platforms like Facebook or LinkedIn have. I mean, I, I... I've I've always described the university as a medieval learning management system. Uh, you um, go to a specific location, you pay a, a, a particular price. They curate your learning for you and give you uh, a certificate or degree that that helps you explain to others what you know. All that can be done online um, now with with thousands of educational providers um, providing um, you know countless different types of educational opportunities to workforce. Um, you, you know, using artificial intelligence and, and uh, to help predict what kind of learning people will want and what kind of learning they need given their professional occupations, um, give them a whole range of different price points um, and different certification levels, and then allow employers to access that database so that they can search for people globally uh, and look for people who have the kind of skills and certificates that they need. So I, I, I think 10 years from now, I, I believe a lot of the workforce-oriented learning is going to be very different. Um, it won't be, I think, going to a single community college to get a, a particular degree program. I think you'll be going to, um, if you will, the LinkedIn or Facebook of learning. Um, check in that morning on what learning opportunities are being suggested for you, picking the ones you want, um, and, and then having that documented on that platform for employers to, to be able to survey.
0: Yeah, so in, in, that, in that vision, right, like, who do you think has some of the advantages? I mean, I'm not talking about individual, you know, names, but like there's, you know, obviously LinkedIn, the, you know, platform I use a lot, they have LinkedIn Learning. So that is, you know, social media, you know, in a way, professional social media combined. We've got, you know, MOOCs that are curating content from all kinds of different places, many different universities. Uh, you know, do, do you see, you know, any particular segment of that ed tech industry, I'll call it, uh, having a leg up? Or is this really going to be the, the vision you painted kind of a new breed that's going to crop up?
1: I actually think um, the world's largest tech companies are going to triple down on their exploration in this market over the next five years. It's a potentially massive market and it's really inefficient. And so the, I think there's a remarkable opportunity there. And Um, You know, you ask yourself, who has um, a a leg up in building the learning management system of the the future? Is it a major research university or is it a major tech company? And frankly, we're going to see in education, I think what we have seen in, say, traditional media, which is that um, content uh, is inexpensive. And... Um, what universities really provide is content, is learning opportunities. Um, what is difficult and challenging is maintaining this, this very vibrant online ecosystem. So, you know, I, I think a lot of tech companies are are exploring the higher education space. They're, they're developing learning management systems for their own employees that are often very sophisticated. I got to look at what Microsoft is doing in that regard, for example, and it's very sophisticated. Uh, Right, you're seeing them start to get into the content world by providing certificate programs. I see all that coming together with uh, with major tech companies partnering with universities and launching um, more more global, ubiquitous learning opportunities.
0: Yeah, so it you know it's 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 akin to a little bit of what Scott Galloway has probably been you know talking about about the you know the tech giants you know becoming education players and you know I buy that thesis too. I mean, in general. You know, I I see things have evolved to uh, employers as the nexus of this, right? So if we think about accreditors as being, you know, the quality, you know, arbiters of higher ed, increasingly it's employers, right, who are going to be essentially a new kind of accreditor for themselves, for educational institutions that might partner with them, you know, and and like a Google, if they come out and they have an IT, you know, certificate that they say they're going to treat as equivalent to a degree well, you know, they control the, you know, the content of that. And then they control the decision to say, we're going to evaluate, uh, you know, value it equivalent to a degree. You know, I'm wondering, you know, I think of like Amazon, right, which is a customer obsessed organization and has been successful by just, you know, staying true to what the customer wants and continually adapting around that. You know, you could argue that higher ed, uh, although it, it probably doesn't like to say it's not student centric, like, if you say, has it really been truly customer centric, right? Constantly paying attention to the needs of, of prospective learners, current learners, right? Alumni who, you know, may touch the university in small ways but we haven't, we haven't really lived up to this ideal of lifelong learning for alumni. I, you know, I'm curious, like, do, do you see that as part of the advantages of tech companies? I mean, not just their tech development prowess but the, the way that they have kind of created a culture around customer insights, constant iteration around those customer insights. I'm just curious how much of it in your head is that versus kind of the technical prowess, if you will.
1: I I think it's both their great strength and their great weakness. Um, Yes, I mean, I I believe that a ruthless focus on growing market share um, will produce dramatic results. And that's something higher education has never done, right? Um, Harvard kept Harvard College small. Uh, right? it, it made that decision. It hasn't branded itself all over the globe right? Um, in ways that they, they could have done. right? Um, so if you enter, if you have companies that are ruthlessly focused on, on growing market share, the, the transformative effect could be enormous. I always think that it's not technologies that disrupt sectors of the economy, it's companies that have technology, but it's the companies that disrupt. Um, but I would say it's also their biggest weakness. By focusing only on those things that can be monetized, uh, there's a real danger that they drag higher education in directions that um, are worrisome. Uh, right. And um, you know, I, I, I do think there's going to be a lot of value for meeting um, the workplace development needs that higher education will need to meet. I mean, we've got millions of Americans who want better jobs, and we have hundreds of thousands of companies that want better skilled, more highly intellectual capable workers. Okay, there's a giant Delta there that that we can help meet. Um, And I think tech companies can be part of that if they enter the sector um, dramatically. But I think traditional higher education does something that's really remarkable and valuable, which is taking relatively young people and giving them a very intensive development process, um, both intellectually and in terms of, of their character and learning to work with and and live with um, highly diverse uh, sets of, of their peers. I don't think that's going to go away in terms of value. Um, I, I, I And I believe that's something that traditional higher education can meet better than, say, a tech company that's trying to monetize every relationship and every interaction.
0: Right. And in some ways, I mean, obviously, we're talking about very different forms of it, but that's where the higher higher education and the military have some things in common right they take you know we're talking the traditional sense 18 year olds or or relatively you know young people into you know intensive environments right where it's intensive training it's intensive teamwork it's intensive you know discipline rigor you know housing right you're living with lots of people right so there there's the, you know those because it's, it's hard for me to imagine how the military would develop a, you know an armed force, right? As entirely online, I can see online augmenting that, but that core kind of development experience is critical. Um, so, one of the uh, a couple of questions that have been coming in from folks uh, on the on, in the audience, putting your you know former college president hat on, uh, how how do we solve the issue of paying for college for middle class families? You know, cost has become a major thing. So, let's say we've nailed the value proposition. Great. But there's still this price tag that for a lot of families uh for for too many families is increasingly unaffordable like how how do we get there i mean it's not a it's not an easy one to solve but i am curious you know how, how do we get there
1: so um i believe profoundly that um we've taken a counterproductive path in terms of of our financing model um you know we have basically decided as a society that college is a private good that will be financed privately for the most part, with individuals and families getting small grants from the government, but for the most part taking loans. And I think this has been a failure. Um, I, you know, I, I really think that higher education is a public good, and to a dramatic extent needs to be publicly financed. So, you know, I would like to see a a tripling of the Pell Grant, um, so that it really gains some teeth that you can actually. Um, go to college uh, primarily grant supported, not loan supported. Um, I would love to see that the 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 Pell grant be um, eligible for use for ex- life expenses outside of tuition. So yeah. particularly working people who are trying to go back and get a degree, um, uh, you know their tuition costs may be low, but their their ability to take uh, you know a twenty hour job, not a fifty hour job a week. Um, you know, may, may may impede them from doing that. Um, so I, I think that convertibility to, to being able to use it for, for real life expenses is important. The last thing I would say is, I'd love to see some element of cost containment yeah. as part of the agreement on tripling um, those costs. I mean, the honest answer is if we just throw uh, more money at universities, that will get built into their tuition model. And I would like to see a real challenge. Um, you know, uh, for universities that are not interested in cost containment, they can get the students to get the traditional size Pell Grant. But for those who are interested in having, um, you know, the supersized, triple sized Pell Grant financing their students, they need to agree to real cost containment um, going forward. Um, so for me, it's, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. There's been a lot of discussion about the future of the Pell Grant the future of tuition-free public education, which I think would be great. We just have to figure out the the, the right uh, uh, public financing mechanisms. Um, but if you think about the future of the country, and I say this as someone who's, you know, certainly works in national security, I can't think of anything more important to the long-term health and security of the country than investing in higher education. So for, for me, this is um, a, a very smart move our country could make
0: yeah look and i agree i mean i think creating those additional incentives attached to cost containment strategies right you know i i I always highlight purdue because they're one of the few that have done this but you know they're now frozen tuition i think for eight or either nine straight years the cost of purdue relative to the rest of the big 10 is just astronomically different now as a result of that and in the meantime purdue hasn't gotten any less competitive i mean they've gone up in almost every ranking rating measurement that you can measure in that time frame so what it says to us is that it can be done, right? Where a commitment is made, it's not to suggest it's easy, but, you know, to your point, if there were real national incentives, right, that, that were also attached to some accountability around cost containment, I think a lot of higher ed institutions would be highly responsive to that uh, and would be very effective. But, you know, look, one of the things we're suffering from right now is a real decline in the confidence of higher education. So right at the, I agree with you needed now more than ever right for any number of reasons uh but you know it it has become uh political right so if we look at the views of higher education between republicans and democrats that split uh about five or six years ago and it's it's probably never going to come back right so you know in in this waning confidence in higher education uh kind of setting it's challenging to get more funding right so if you were now put on a hat you haven't worn right you're the governor of a state. Uh, you know, what, what What does a state do? What do you do as a governor to kind of move people back away from this, you know, let's call it, you know, increasing negativity or lack of confidence they've had in higher ed over the last five, six, seven years. How do we get it back so that we get support for more funding for higher education? What would be a couple of the big ideas you put out there?
1: So the, the simple thing I would say is I don't think this can be a state-by-state driven process. Um, and, you know, my home state of Oregon is a, is a, is a classic example. Um, uh, there's just never been in, the, in, you know, the past 30 years um, a political consensus in the state for a greater investment in higher education. Um, it always comes down to a fight in the state between higher ed funding and K-12 funding, and higher ed loses time after time. Um, so I think if there's going to be uh, a major change in how we finance college education. It's gonna to have to come from the federal government. It's gonna to have to yeah. come from presidential leadership um, and uh, it's gonna to have to um, require congressional support. And I would say historically supporting higher education was a, a very broad bipartisan thing. That has really changed over the last five years. And yeah. um, I think we need to have a serious conversation um, not to get too political here, but the, the Republican Party um, has has has, has um, generally their voter base has deep skepticism about college uh, and the direction of, of college and higher ed. And I don't think that's a great position for the Republican Party to be in, um, to be playing to its base in ways which then alienate um, the, the entire college electorate, a college-educated electorate. So I think there has to be a serious conversation in the Republican Party about its attitude toward higher education. And certainly, higher ed could do a better job of trying to win back bipartisan support. I mean, I, uh, if you look at it now, I mean, I wrote about this on Inside Higher Ed. Right now, the entire higher education community is viewed by Republicans as a Democratic Party interest group. And that is not sustainable uh, that is not sustainable. So we need to move back to a dialogue where, um, I think Republicans are more interested in engaging with higher ed and higher ed is trying to meet them, um, uh, uh, at least part of the way.
0: Yeah. And a lot of that going back to, uh, some good Gal data that I was familiar with during my time there, you know, the, the real issues are kind of what you pointed out, right? On the, on, on those who have soured on higher ed, uh, especially on the Republican side, it's, it's you know, one is the, the perceived liberal bias in higher ed, right? That's a part of it. But one of the biggest drivers is the perceived lack of work readiness and the work relevance of, of institutions. So, you know, yeah, we need to address this on a number of levels, but, you know, improvements in the view of the relevance of what's being taught, the work relevance and work readiness of graduates is gonna be a big improvement for all of us, but to, to, to you know, hopefully kind of, you know, bring that divide a little bit closer together. But uh, I'm intrigued by your thought that it really has to be solved at the federal level. And, uh, and I hope, you know, there's, there's uh, a lot of folks on this today who are, you know, going to be helpful influencers of what that is. So I know we've hit our time, John, uh, would obviously love to keep chatting, but um, really grateful for you joining today. Thanks so much to everybody who joined and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Sounds good. Thanks so much.